campus in Glenmore. We have a campus in Lake Country. And, of course, we have a campus at 33 as well. But uh, we're just delighted that you have chosen to come out. If this is your first time, then we have a connection card in the back of the seat in front of you. And you can fill that out and hand it into the uh, Connect desk. And they'll give you a welcome pack and a big warm smile. And they'll answer any questions that you might have. And uh, we'd love to connect with you in that way. We do have a couple of announcements. And we've got a couple of people who are going to, I think, actually just one person who's going to come up and uh, tell you something about something that's exciting coming up. The the first thing I want to tell you about, though, is this uh, Monday, tomorrow night, is Willow One Prayer. And it is here. So this is a once a month prayer meeting that we have as a network. And uh, since it's in our backyard, in our house, then it would be wonderful for you guys to be able to come out and support this really, really important once a month meeting. So that's tomorrow night, and it starts at, I believe, let me just have a quick look, uh, 7 o'clock. It's 7 o'clock, and it's until 8.30. So please come on out. It's, I'm going to be leading the prayer meeting as well, and it'd be nice to see some nice smiley faces that I know rather than some nice smiley faces in faith that I'm not sure who they are. So it would be great if you could come out. That's tomorrow. That's tomorrow night. And then, okay, brace yourselves. We have the seniors hoedown. Stroke rave. That's what it says there. So I don't know whether that includes lasers and laser pans and the glow sticks and some thick drum and bass. I'm guessing not some... Mu- oh, it's Cowboy Bob. Maybe he does that as well. I, I don't know. But uh, that's the seniors hoedown that's coming. It'd be great one week if we just decided to crash that, whether you feel that you're a senior or not, and uh, just uh, get your hoedown. I'm not even sure what that means. So I'm going to move on. Uh, and then we have a family movie uh, matinee that is coming up on uh, Saturday, November 15th at Willow Park at 33. And it starts at 1.30. And I believe the movie is Planes, Fire and Rescue. So you can put that if you want to come along to that and bring your kids or not bring your kids. If you just like coming to the movies and popcorn, then that's, that's good too. Um, I'm going to ask Jerry right now. Is Jerry here? She wants to just make mention of a couple of things that are happening in the South Ladies, I believe. So hopefully that's working, Jerry. Good morning. My name is Jerry Ostrom, and I'm here to tell you about um, the women's retreat this weekend. It's uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it's at Garden Lake. So not only, ladies, will you be in a beautiful environment, nature, but you'll be able to go for a prayer walk and just... Be still and connect with God. We're, um, this, the theme this time is delight, delight in God's grace. And we're in for a treat, I'm told. Carolyn Birch is our speaker. And many of you might know of her or know her. She's very connected with Willow Park. And I'm told she's just a very inspirational speaker and uh, just is a woman passionate about studying God's word. And I'm sure that we'll be blessed. The um, cost is $115 for both nights, accommodation and all meals. But I have a little inside scoop for those of you that aren't so keen on maybe staying over for the whole weekend or uh, just not okay with sleeping in bunk beds. But you can come up for the day. So for $40, you can uh, have two sessions and all the meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, you'll be blessed. There's lots of chocolate fondue, and you can even get a massage for $20. Today's the last day for registration, and again, that $40 uh, day only thing isn't advertised, so if that's something you'd like to do, please see me afterwards, and we'll make sure that you can get registered. (laughs) It was just great. I I saw John Casoso visibly perk up when she said massage, so (laughs) get your wig on, John, and off you go. Go for it, mate. Wig is optional. I'm, I'm feeling bad now talking about wigs. But, uh, <laughs> um, so please, if you want to go to the uh, ladies' uh, retreat, then Jerry has all the information. And Jane, I believe, if Jane is here. I see that hand. I haven't forgotten. Thank you, Shannon. Shannon's reminding me that uh, Living uh, Nativity is coming up. For those of you who are new in the city, you're in for a treat. Because once a year at Christmas, hence Nativity, uh, Willow Park Church gives a gift to the city. And this has been going on a number of years. And uh, we have anything up to about 8,000 people 
who come to the living nativity at 33, and 33 as a church is transformed into exactly what it sounds like. It's a living nativity. In years past, they've had live animals and different things. I don't think that's happening this year, but it is, uh, they have the, uh, just, it's just an amazing experience. And 8,000 people come out. That's a wonderful gift to our community to celebrate what Christmas is all about. But it only happens with the hard work of a large team of volunteers. And Shannon is very much involved in organizing all that aspect of the ministry. And it really is a lot of fun. I know that people enjoy just the run-up to it while it's happening. And, and uh, so if you are interested, or you want, if you, even if you're not an upfront person, I have heard that they're looking for dancers. Just, just calm down, those of you who are just thinking, I think I still have my tutu. Um, that, uh, is that right? You need dancers? Okay. Right, Brandon Tremblay, right there. I saw him just get very excited there. Um, so, but even if you're a behind-the-scenes person, I know there's, there's, there's ways you can help with that as well. If you could see Shannon, and she would love to give you some information about that. And uh, it's a real, like I say, it's a, it's a wonderful way to give something back to our beautiful uh, city. I want to, uh, just before I dismiss the children, I want to pray um, specifically for a family that, that we love very much in the South, and uh, certainly for us as a family are very supportive in the way that they help uh, us directly, and that's Wendy and Grant Delcourt. Uh, Wendy um, is at her dad's side right now in Castlegar, and he's very, very sick, and, um, and we've been in contact texting back and forth, and he really, really is very, very poorly. And so I asked her this morning, how can we as a church pray? And she said, um, she said, just please pray that Jesus takes him home. He's in a lot of pain and he's in a lot of, uh, he's, he's really suffering right now. And so it's really, for those of you who have ever been through an experience where you're watching a loved one who loves Jesus and they're just ready to go home. Um, that's where they're at right now. So I think it would be good for us as a church family to pray for that family. And that's what we're going to pray for. That's why we ask, how do you want us to pray? Uh, he wants to go and see, he wants to go and see some of his friends and relatives and more importantly, Jesus. And so that's, we're going to pray for the Delcourt family and Jim. And, uh, for those of you who met and know Jim, he's just such a, he's such a great guy. And, um, um, we really, uh, we really, and we said we'd pray for him, and he would be blessed to for that to know that's happening. So, why don't you spend a minute praying for Jim, and pray for one or two other people in our church who are struggling right now with various sicknesses. Dear Lord, we um, we come to you knowing that God, you are you are the Lord of life, and you are the Lord of death. That God, that your word says that we all have a time, and you determine what that time is. And Father, it, it appears that that Jim's time is coming to an end. And uh, Lord, we thank you that he knows you, that he loves you, and that, Lord, that he is unapologetic about telling people about you and has lived life honoring you. And, Lord, it's just so great to see a witness like that and that we can be humbled by and learn from. But, Lord, we just ask in just in parallel with the prayers of the family that right now, that, Lord, that you would just you would, you'd take him home that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would be very much uh, center in that room, that your presence would be tangible, and that, God, that, uh, that your timing, Lord, we know is perfect. And so in our limited wisdom, we would just ask that you would have your will and your way, and that, Lord, he can look forward to uh, seeing you very soon. Lord, we pray for Wendy and Grant and Maddie and Hannah and the direct family. Lord, I pray you would give them strength and encouragement um, Lord, in this really difficult time, the Father would just be very uh, sure of your comfort and your presence. And Lord, we pray for other people in the church, Lord, who we love, who are struggling uh, right now, Lord, with uh, sickness. We pray especially for Teresa, who um, is very sick. Lord, we just ask, Lord, for healing and health. And Lord, we just know that by your power and by your will that all things are possible. So God, we would just ask that she would just be aware of your presence, Lord, yes, but God, that she would, this infection would, would disappear and recede, Lord. We ask this in your good name, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray for the rest of our time together. Lord, for the kids who are going out. Lord, we pray for the volunteers. We thank you for them. Lord, let your gospel be heard really clearly in those classes. Let there be a blessing time on those classes, Lord. We ask these things in your good and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Kids, you are dismissed, and uh, God bless you. Those of you who are staying, and we'll be heading back in a minute, um, we're going to just take up our offering right now, and while we do so, well, we're going uh, to turn to Exodus uh, chapter 20. Um, so I'll just call the, uh, the greeters forward to do the offering. Thank you very much. Exodus chapter 20. For those of you who have been with us each week over the last um, few weeks, we're now in part seven, I believe, of our series uh, on the Ten Commandments. And uh, it's been a surprising series in many ways because what we see as uh, what we think the Ten Commandments are all about, we've actually been pleasantly surprised that it's very different uh, than we uh, first expected. We started talking about how the Ten Commandments are not an end in and of themselves, but they're a design of life in order for us to enjoy the way that God has created us to live. And so they're not a set of rules as much as a kind of a framework we're to build our life on. Uh, Today's commandment is an interesting one. Today's commandment is from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Now, hopefully in your bulletins you have some notes there that you can follow along with. You can also t- go onto your mobile device and you can follow along on version. There's instructions in the bulletin on that as well. And the scriptures will appear behind me as we go as well because my son is in charge of that, I think, and he is poised, ready to go. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Full stop. That's the end of the command. There is no parenthesis. There's no explanation. It's just you shall not murder. And then in Matthew 5 verse 21, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, by the way, interestingly, uh, that, that word fool comes from, uh, comes from the idea of, of rakai, which is, it is a really uh, offensive thing to say to somebody, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, in all honesty and quite naturally, you'll think, okay, Glenn is going to be preaching about anger. And really, that is not the topic of my, of my, uh, my sharing with you this morning, because As I studied this scripture, it becomes very apparent to me once again, the thing with the commandments that's interesting, as Paul says in the New Testament, in life there's a putting on of things and there's a putting off of things. In other words, there's things that we should be doing and there's things that we shouldn't be doing. And so as we read through the commandments, it becomes very clear that the, so for example, the first command we looked at was we put God first. But God actually says, don't have any other gods before me. There's a, there's a putting on and there's a putting off. There's a negative, if you like, and a positive aspect to each of the commandments. So that you know how, not have any graven images. The positive to that is we need to think about God correctly. God says, take a rest. The positive to that is stop, slow down, take some soul rest. Last week it was honor your parents. That's positive. Negative would be do not dishonor your parents. And so when we come to the do not murder, my first thought is, well, what's the positive to that? What is it that God is instructing us to do? And you can go to the New Testament, and it says, and Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, that it also includes anger. But that is still a do not be angry. What is it that God is telling us as a life principle that we all need to be putting into place? Because here's the reality. Some of you, when you saw that I was preaching on do not murder, understand me going got this one nailed. Because Glenn, I haven't murdered anybody today. Although the day is young and my kids are annoying, I haven't murdered anybody today. If we just look at this scripture on face value, there's a danger in us distancing ourselves from it and go, well, that's got nothing to do with me. Or even more problematic, or perhaps as problematic, is you jump to other conclusions. And and this is the danger with studying the Bible. You can read a verse and go, oh, well, that's what this must mean, without actually studying what it means. 
And there's an assumption made. So you look at this and go, oh, well, God is talking about capital punishment. He's talking about war. He's talking about abortion. He's talking about euthanasia. He's talking about murder. He's talking about all these things. And again, if we just center on that, then we distance ourselves from it. Because again, I haven't been at war today. It was hard getting my kids out of the house. I agree. But it's not war. I haven't been directly influenced today by capital punishment. So let's, let's peel away. What is it that God is actually trying to say to us here? It might surprise you that this scripture, do not murder, as you hear and as you follow and as you study, is perhaps one of the most beautiful statements that God makes in the Bible. And I use my words very carefully. Because God is speaking to a higher standard of living, to every one of us, that today you could break this commandment, and positively today you can actually see the, uh, the underlying truth that God wants to bring out actually come alive in your life. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful truth. So let's unpack this. The first thing, I want to start off big, point one, in the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. I've been really enjoying the last four or five weeks going into KCS, Kelowna Christian School, and taking one class a week with the grad class on apologetics. And we've been unpacking some of the big questions in life, and, and, I, and I love the interaction with grade 12. It's like, I, I, it's like me going back to my original trade as a teacher, and I just enjoy being in the classroom. It's a lot of fun. And one of the things that we've been talking about is the seemingly tension between science and Christianity, of which really there is no tension. The nice thing about, let's just start really big, and then we're going to come down to the really small. So buckle up, this is a bit of a journey, and I'm going to be quick, and I'm going to be fast, and I'm going to give you some resources that you can read more about if you really want to dig into this. The beautiful thing about the Bible is it definitively says that life and the universe had a beginning, in the beginning. A gentleman called Hubble, you might have heard the Hubble telescope, discovered not so long ago that the universe is actually expanding at an even rate. He could use mathematics and physics to actually see and prove this. And because it's expanding at an even rate, you can extrapolate back to a center point where the universe started. Scientists would agree with Hubble. Christians, Genesis 1-1, would also agree. The so-called Big Bang. That at one point there was nothing and then suddenly something happened. Something so powerful, so huge, so amazing that it created the universe. And here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. As Christians we have an answer. As science they do not. There is no credible answer to the Big Bang Theory. To the how was it there was nothing and then suddenly there was something. And there's been lots of scrambling around over the last five, six hundred years, even further back, as to, as to how creation, how universe actually started. And, and it's very interesting when you start reading what scientists, these are atheist scientist statements when it comes to the Big Bang. Let me give you just one from a British uh, uh, physicist, Sir Arthur Eddington. He said this, the beginning seems to present insufferable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as frankly supernatural. It's very interesting. Scientists will philosophically say it can't be a God because they just discount God straight away. So therefore it has to be something else. And yet all of the evidence points to a supernatural beginning because there is no answer. Stephen Hawking came up with some answer as to how time could be finite but also flexible. And he tried to prove that by using imaginary numbers, which is not unusual in equations, I've been told. But he used imaginary numbers to the point where it actually stretched the theory so thin that other scientists said, actually, you can't do that. You can't make a rational equation using numbers you've made up in that particular context. And in 1996, he said, yeah, you're right. It was just a theory. We don't know what happened before there was nothing. Except as Christians, we say, yes, we do. We do, because God said that's what happened. Science has no credible answer. Then we move on as to how the universe and the earth are fine-tuned for life beyond comprehension. This fine-tuning, this is mind-blowing. So those of you who have got really, if you're thinking, man, I just need more coffee, you're going to need a lot more coffee in the next couple of minutes. 
There are different elements of the universe that need to be in place in order for the universe to actually exist. Simple things like gravity. And there are lots and lots of physicists and astrophysicists and and, uh, other people with ist on the side at the end of their names would all agree that there are these different elements and each one of them has to be absolutely perfect for life to exist. In fact, if gravity was different just was one part off in 10 followed by 39 zeros. Just think about that. So that's 10 to the power of 40, I think. Is that right, Mr. Yonkyu in the room? Can you give me a nod? I can't see him. Yes, am I right? 10 to the power of 40? So, is that, so that's, that's one part in 10 to the whatever the bazillion it is. I'm such a physicist. If it was just off by one part, life would cease to exist. The speed of expansion, the way the universe is moving away. If it was one part to the power of a million million off, then the universe would actually have imploded as quick as it expanded. And you can go from one after another after another of different elements. It's called the fine-tuning. Now, that in itself is pretty amazing. But then you actually have to, they have to relate to one another perfectly. So let me give you an illustration as to what that would be like. But really, the odds of this happening is actually more likely than the odds of that happening by chance. Imagine all the roulette wheels in Las Vegas, of which none of you have seen, are all spun at the same time all across Las Vegas. And every one of them falls on a number that's perfectly relatable to the others. So this number is one-third of this one. That's the square root of this one. That's to the pi of this one. And they're all in relation. What are the odds of that happening by what scientists would say by chance? Whereas Christians would say in the beginning, God said. They say it's by chance. One person far more intelligent than me said it would be like this. Imagine, which you can't, but I'll say it anyway. A billion, billion billion black balls and one white ball. And these billion black balls just cover the solar system, billion, billion, billion of them, and one white ball. And then I blindfold you, and I say, go find it. And you can put your hand in at the perfect spot and pull one white ball out. That is the same odds of all this being by chance. You would have to say it was rigged, and we would say, yeah, it is rigged by God. The universe is rigged. But imagine I tell you you have to do that three times in the row. That's what we're talking about. By chance. Christians would say no. Scientists would say, actually, we, we don't know the answer. One day we'll find out. But life itself is special. All this universe to the fine-tuning down to the human being. I can't go into all the details, but the, the, the chances of a human being coming together by chance in the primordial soup, so-called, is just, it's, it's so mind-blowingly at odds as to reality that this would just happen like scientists say. And yet we would say God created. There are aspects of the human body. Scientists don't know how it would come together in evolution. Because they would all have to happen all at the same time. Blood clotting would all have to happen. All the different elements would have to happen all at the same time. Which stands at odds with the theory of evolution when it comes to the beginning of life. There is no scientific understanding as to how the respiration system, how bones, how the eye, and how blood clotting evolved. Psalm 139 says this, I praise you, for I am fearfully... And wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So if you're, a, if you're a skeptic or even the greatest minds who are atheists and scientists struggle to find an answer. They have to place huge amounts of faith in the undiscovered in the hope that one day we'll understand. But as a Christian I can say, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Genesis 1 verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Why do I share all this? What's it got to do with murder? Number two, the Imago Dei. I want you to remember these two words, the Imago Dei. 
You see, the universe shouts out the existence and the glory of God with mankind being the pinnacle of his creation. The Imago Dei, being created in his image. Imago, image, Dei, God. God's image. The Bible tells us that all of creation reflects his image. If you want proof of that, go outside. You know, I've said this to you a number of times. You stand in front of a mountainous region or a beautiful lake like we have here or the sea when it's roaring. It makes us feel very, very small because that feeling you're feeling is of the divine. It shouts out his glory. It shouts out his strength. It shouts out his power. Everything glorifies God in some way. There are elements of God's character and personality and beauty in every aspect of creation. You can feel God. You can see God. I came out of the house this morning. This warm breeze hits my face. And you can feel nature. Which, by the way, If everything is created in and through God, like it says in Colossians 1.16, that everything is for him and through him and to him, that all things in some way reflect his imago Dei, his, his image, his character, his personality. If all that is true and then we are released to be stewards of that, you have a sensible argument for Christian environmentalism. In other words, we have a responsibility to be good stewards of that which cries out God's glory. Not the weird environmentalism that just wants to kiss and hug trees and say that we're part of them and the same as them and worship the environment where it makes it a God, where it becomes obsessive, that it becomes the ultimate. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about let's not abuse it. So God, all the way through creation, he says, this is good. This is good. The universe, it's good. Trees, it's good. Nature, it's good. Cats, not so good. No, I'm joking. Good. Kind of. All these things, he says, good, good in Genesis, good. And then he creates man and woman. And he says, this is very good. Very good. The Imago Dei. Why is it very good? Let's see that scripture again, Luke. Genesis 1, verse 27. He created man. This is generic man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's very good. See, the Imago Dei is God created us in his image, higher than anything else. Do you know there's a scripture in Deuteronomy that says that the universe was created as a heritage for his people? So you go out at night and you look at this universe and you go, you know what? This is mine. Do it quietly. We'll share it. This was actually all pointing down to you. In comparison to you, it's nothing. In comparison, the creation is nothing compared to God's view of you. You're precious. You're sacred. The Bible tells us that. I have a dog called Buddy. We called him Buddy because we figured that we'd always forget his name. So Buddy just seemed to be like, hey, Buddy. It's always right. Except when you can call your kids Buddy as well. It gets very, very confusing. The dog perks up and so does Jack. Both think they're going to get a treat. There are, some, there are some aspects of Buddy that I am similar to. I'll be honest. He's got a mouth. I've got a mouth. He has eyes. I have eyes. He has ears. I have ears. His ears move more than my ears, but we have the similarity. He has legs. So do I. He has more fur than I do, but we both have fur. But then the similarity kind of comes to an end. You know, he likes treats. So do I. He likes food. So do I. Maybe not quite as obsessively as he does. I don't sit and beg for my wife. But sometimes I do, especially if the chocolate is belonging to her and I really want some. But you know what? If he takes a dump in the middle of a carpet, he gets picked up by the scruff of his neck. The similarity is not the same with the, you know. He gets picked up by the scruff of his neck. When he was a puppy, he might have his nose put in it. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but it happened. And then you throw him outside. What happens half an hour later, the dog comes back in like, everything's great again. He's not moaning three days later, kind of going, "Mm, sorry about that. He's not feeling bad about it. 
Now you can go, oh yeah, but you know, sometimes you can tell when dogs do something, but it doesn't last. There's no shame covering his life. He's not asking me for forgiveness a week later for the mistake he made. He doesn't long for the same things I long for. He doesn't dream about the same things I dream about. He dreams. I can see his little paws going. But life dreams? He's not sitting and planning out, what am I going to do next week? All he's interested in is the next morning when his master, which is Sarah, gets up and she gives him some food. That's his focus. The similarities end. If we're completely honest, and this might upset some of you, if there was a choice between a dog and a human being, I really hope you choose the human being. There's something odd. And I'm going to say our society does this. When they place animals and pets over humans, there's something not right about it. Because they are not Imago Dei like you and me. The Bible tells us that the Imago Dei on you, the life, the image of God, Imago Dei life is of infinite value. It doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what class you are. It doesn't matter what car you drive or how smart you think you are. The Imago Dei is a stamp from God that says you are sacred. You are precious, more precious than any other aspect of nature. Does that mean that God doesn't care about nature? No, that's not what I said. But in comparison, there's something about human life. The Imago Dei is the foundation for all human respect. Because it's sacred. You take Imago Dei, the image of God, out, then you lose human respect. I'm going to come to that in a second. But let me just say something really briefly and importantly. You are not the point. I never said you're the point. We are not the point. It's not like the whole universe revolves around me, my, myself, and what I want. God is the point. Time and time again, the Bible says in Isaiah 48, it's filled with it in Isaiah. It says, for my sake, for my own sake, I do it. God's plan is for his own glory. Now, we find that difficult because we think of that in a very selfish, sinful way. It's all about God, is it? It's all about himself. Well, how selfish. Remember, God is perfect. Here's the reason it has to be about him. Because if he placed anything else above him, he would not be God. And so it's in our interest that he protects his own glory. He protects his love for us. He protects his own character and his personality. That's why it's about his glory. But there is joy in that. But the Bible does say we reflect God's personality, his eternity, his creativity in a way that animals and mountains do not. I strive to know things in a way that Buddy the dog does not. I strive for love in ways that Buddy the dog does not. Does that mean he can't love? No, I didn't say that. In ways that he cannot, I can love. We strive for beauty and creation and and art and music and things that just lift our souls in a way that a mountain cannot. We strive to last a long time because we're eternal. We strive for love because we're personal. We love beauty and music and sunsets and creation because we are ourselves creative. These are all marks of God on your life. We have eternity in our hearts, it says in Ecclesiastes 3. The stamp of God, you are sacred. Some of you need to hear that word this morning because some of you are accidents. You weren't planned. Some of you were accidents and felt like an accident all the way through your life. You were always an inconvenience. You were always being rejected. And then when you grew up out of adolescence and became an adult, you found that that same mark was on your life, that maybe men rejected you constantly or women rejected you constantly. or You just had this constant sense of being rejected. Can I say the Imago Dei is for you? Because you are precious in God's sight. You are sacred in God's sight in a way that is incomparable to anything else in creation. He sees you. And when he looks at you, he sees personalities and characters from you. He dis- from him. He decided your life should begin. You are never an accident. You are not a result of primordial soup. 
Number three, the sanctity of life. Because if what I say about the Imago Day is correct, what does it mean to obey this command, do not murder? What does it mean to obey this command, do not murder? Let me give you an illustration. I have here a pretty poor picture of my family. Sarah, me, and Jack, and Amber, and Luke, and Zoe. This was actually taken by somebody wonderful in our church, Liz. And it's a nice picture. I printed it off this morning. You know, it's not a great print, and you can actually see black mites, which tells me that my printer ink needs to be changed. But it's still a picture. It's an image of the reality. It's a reflection of the reality. I could line up my family, and they would not appreciate it right now, but I could line them up, and we could do the same pose. And you would giggle, and they would be embarrassed, and I'd be told off later on. But it'd be worth it. But I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. Amber, you can relax. But it's just a reflection of the reality. However, there's something about just an image that is precious. I find it very hard to wrap my mind around, no matter how rough and poor an image of the original this is, for me to tear it in half. There's something inside of me that kind of goes, no, because even though it's a poor reflection, somehow I'm discarding the original by destroying the copy. Does that make sense? Because, I, I mean, I, can, I could probably tear that far with some comfort, just above Amber's head. But then I start thinking, okay, for me to carry on, I somehow have to deface and be careless and discard this picture that is a rough image of the original. doesn't matter how great a reflection is. I could get a beautiful color printed picture. Or I could get something that's really faded. Those pictures that maybe are still in your wallet. All you have of somebody is a faded picture. The thought of destroying that picture actually makes you feel upset. I can't do it. Some of you are like, oh, you will agree, you'll understand. Think of a loved one. Defacing something that is precious. Being careless with something that is an image. Here's the thing, friends. The Bible says that we're all in varying degrees reflections of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, the character, the personality, the beauty, the creativity of God is reflected in your life. Even if you do not believe in God, even if you are angry at God, there is still marks on your life that science cannot answer as to how you exist that are stamps of God on your life. You are a reflection of God. And there are some people in this world who seem to be better reflections of God, better printouts. It doesn't matter. See, being careless and and discarding something that is even a poor reflection of the Imago Dei feels wrong inside of us. Why? Because we all have Imago Dei. We all have eternity in our hearts. So here's what I'm getting to. The Bible tells us that whenever we treat another human being poorly, from anger to murder and everything in between, we are in some way tearing the image of God, discarding it, being careless with it. And we don't get to do that. The Bible's really clear. Do not murder. Do not be angry. You treat people correctly. You treat people in the way that the Imago Dei deserves because it's a reflection of God himself. So the sixth commandment does this. It puts a protective shield around every human being and says, sacred. That's why this verse is so beautiful. Because it's a verse about the Imago Dei, not just about murder. It's the why do we not murder? Why should we not be angry? Why should we treat one another with love and care? It's because every human life in some way is sacred. And can I say this very truthfully and very seriously? You take Imago Dei out of the equation, you make God out of the equation, then suddenly you have no sanctity of life because now you're back to primordial soup and you're just an animal. We can be as careless as we like. Because you're just accidental, you're just a 
bunch of enzymes and cells and DNA all pushed together by nature, and you're just an accident. So you're just like any other animal, so treat yourselves like animals. You take away the Imago Dei, then what you're left with is just animals killing animals, and we should just shrug our shoulders and go, well, who cares? But we don't, because we have a fingerprint of God in our life. Where does that come from? No God means no Imago Dei. And this results in no human dignity and therefore no reason for any social justice or care. See, humanity is in a quandary because they don't want to pull God into the equation. But without God in the equation, you have no reason to care about humanity. How do we know what is right and wrong? Because the Imago Dei is wired into every one of us. Even people who do not believe in God would say that there's a difference between humans and animals, that humans seem to have some moral ground. They seem to know and reason and understand why. I'll go, yeah, I agree. Why? I don't know, is what the world would say. We've just evolved that way, by chance. I would say, yeah, I agree, because that is the Imago Dei in our life. Really, frustratingly, one of the most famous atheists in, country, in the world, in, in, in our modern history who said God is dead said this this is a direct quote from Nietzsche another Christian concept no less crazy has passed even more deeply into the tissues of modernity 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 pardon modernity really okay let's say that again Another Christian concept, no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. The concept of equality of souls before God. He says the equality of souls is crazy. But it's part of our lifestyle, he says. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. So you don't have equal rights if you don't have Imago Dei. And he's right, except he calls it crazy. See, when you come to this command, the first question should not be, how does this relate to war or capital punishment or abortion or suicide or euthanasia? A higher question is this. The first application is command is that everyone you come into, into contact with should be treated with value and worth because they have the Imago Dei. You break this command when you treat somebody badly and carelessly, when you discard them. Do you treat people warmly and with value because they are in some way an image of God, no matter how bad an image? See, now we can, we can, we can love our enemies because even in our enemies, there's some Imago Dei. Are you interested in people? Do you just see people as stepping stones for you to get on? And when you're done with them, you discard them and you move on to the next person. Do people feel better having spent time with you? Or do they feel like they've just been talked at for the last hour? Do you keep this command daily by honoring the Imago Dei? Think about Jesus and Judas. Jesus treated Judas with honor. Why? Because I think even in Judas, he saw some Imago Dei. How do I know that? Because in you and me, with all our sin and shame and rubbish that goes on every day, he sees Imago Day. He sees something to love. And so when we start applying this to our life, then we see that the Imago Day results in there not being any ordinary people or mere mortals. There's nobody who's better than somebody else. Whether you're a man or a woman, we are Imago Day. Whether you are rich or poor, you're a Margot Day. Whether you are white or black, you're a Margot Day. It takes out all this hierarchy. It just makes you are of value. How do I know? Because you are breathing and you're alive. It does speak into some large issues. I'm not discounting euthanasia and abortion and war and capital punishment. But if we center on that, we lose the essence as to why. But let me just choose one. Let me just choose one that is so pertinent to our culture, which is abortion. Abortion is wrong and sinful because of the Imago Dei. See, very few pro-choice activists now say, well, it's not human. Science has moved on from that. That's not an argument anymore. 
of any real worth. What they're using now is, well, a woman's right to choose. So what they're actually saying is that a mother's life is more valuable than a baby, that, that, her, that her choices in the future are more valuable than a baby. And they'll use, ratio, they'll use quotes about rape and disability. And the reality is, is that less than 1% of abortions happen because of rape. Less than 1% of abortions happen because of a disability. And a tiny fraction of less than 1% is as a, as a result of a risk to mum. The reality is, it's more about convenience. So here I have a little picture of my family. It's as hard to discard this as it is this. Because this is no less an image of my family than this. I could paint all the different pictures and colors or whatever. It's still an image of my family. It's still an image of the Imago Dei. And I could no less discard or rip or feel better about this than I would a larger human being. But can I say this? When you start applying the lens of Imago Day on life, it's life-changing. It's politics-changing. It's worldview-changing. Things We don't jump into what the media says very quickly. We actually take a step back and go, okay, where's the Imago Day in this? What is it that God is calling me to be in this? And as I talk about abortion, I do want to say this. The only people present in this room right now are sinners in need of grace. Not people who have done or not done. Do you understand? You see, Imago Dei says that we're all in need of grace. That we're all, regardless of what we've done or what we've not done, or where we've been or not been, or things we've experienced or not experienced, whether it's been abortion or not abortion, all that is leveled fact that we all need of grace. We all need the cross. We all need God's love. So you're not defined by what you've done or haven't done. You're defined by God's love and potential forgiveness through the cross. So whether you have had an abortion or not, as an important issue as that is, the issue is grace. Grace Because we cannot point fingers and judge on issues of grace. We might not agree with. We may even protest against. But it's all on the basis of non-judgmental grace. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with judgment. I've said this to you before. There's nothing wrong with judgment when it is based on, uh, on what is best in God's eyes and what is best on that person in relation to God. The judgment that says, well, at least I'm not like them, that's wrong. But as Christians, we have been called to judge what is right and what is wrong. And we can judge what is right and wrong so beautifully when we look at life through the Imago Dei. You see, God saw the Imago Dei in you and sacrificed his son for you. He sent his son to fulfill the Imago Dei, to say, look, they were created to be this way. They're not that way. They're separated from me. So I will send my son and through him and him taking the punishment that they deserve, we will bring the Imago Dei back. We will bring the separation. We'll close it down so you can actually be part of God's plan. You can be part of the Imago Dei as it was originally meant to be. You can be part of the grace of God. Restore us back to what we should be. Enable us to love and honor people who are sometimes unloved lovable and unhonorable. We can do that through the grace because we can do that because God did that for you and me. We can be motivated by God's image in all. You see, Imago Dei gives us a lens to look at life through and informs us of many of the world's issues. So you can look at slavery through Imago Dei. You can look at sex trafficking, war, human rights, racial prejudice, sexual prejudice, the sex industry. If you place Imago Dei on all those as a Christian, it surely should change our thinking. Because now you're not just talking about issues, you're talking about the image of God. So when it says, do not murder... Let's don't murder the image of God in each human. 
Let's not murder the Imago Dei in creation. It brings it home to reality for every one of us. We can look at life differently and see people differently. We appreciate God through them because of what God did for you. It affects how you drive to work in the morning. (laughs) So now you treat people differently because now they're the image of God. How do you treat that person how do you treat the coworker? How do you treat the family member? How do you how do you go about life in the light of Imago Day? So here's my prayer for you and for us as a church. And I'd like you to close your eyes and just receive this as we come to a close. This is what I prayed this week for us as individuals and as a church. Let's just close your eyes. May you see feel and experience the glory and love of God in his beautiful creation. May you live gratefully aware of how precious you are in his sight as the pinnacle of creation. May you treat life as precious and recognize the Imago day in each person you come into contact with. And may you present God and his image well to those who don't know him. And most importantly, and Father, help us to do this. May you give him thanks for sacrificing himself so you could live in the full Imago Day. Father, we thank you for the beauty and the preciousness and the sanctity of life. That God, you have, as Christians and as humans, have given us the highest calling to treat it in the same way you treat it. Father, I pray that as a church, that on each day we would look at life in the knowledge of the Imago Dei. But Father, it doesn't just come down to murder, but it comes down to whether we discard and treat carelessly. God, let us be a church who is aware of your beauty in every human, whether they are a long way from you, where there is little to like, Lord, I pray you would empower us to love them because you love them. And Lord, we pray, especially as we have mentioned this morning, for all those unborn lives in this city with mums who are considering their options. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that by your spirit that you would speak to them And that even in their limited understanding, they would get an inkling of the Imago Dei that is in their womb. And Father, I thank you that you love every one of them, no matter how small and how inconspicuous they may be. And God, I thank you that you were willing to sacrifice your son so that he could take the punishment that we all truly deserve for the sins that we willingly commit so that we could be one with you. So Father, I pray as a church, even as we worship and praise you now, that through the words of the songs and through the sense of your presence in this room, that God, that we would be so acutely aware of your love for us. That those who don't know you will be drawn to you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.